Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit is, the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In the year 2007, Steve Jobs got up in front of, onto a stage, and if you don't know Steve Jobs, he's the co-founder of Apple. He got up on stage and he gave a presentation that changed our world. He talked about how people had all sorts of devices. He said GPSs, Walkmans, computers, walkie-talkies. But then he said that all of that was about to change because that they had created a new device that was going to change everything. And as probably most of you know, on that day he revealed the very first iPhone. And I'm not going to ask if you guys are iPhone fans or not, because there's some very heated debates about Android and iPhone, but... Um, but yeah, tr it's true enough though, when they released that first product, the first iPhone, our world has been the same, not been the same. Um, and probably be the same when they get iPhone 75 too. Now, so the iPhone obviously changed a lot of things. There's other inventions over the course of history that have also changed history. We think about the light bulb, think about the wheel, the printing press. When these inventions were revealed, when they were unveiled, our world was changed. Well, but this morning, I want to spend a little time talking about an unveiling that's much greater than the iPhone 75 or the printing press. Something that's actually more impactful or significant than even the light bulb. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the unveiling of the human heart. We're going to look at that process of what that looks like. Our text tells us that our hearts are covered with veils, and these veils keep us separated from God. And so we're going to discuss how we all need an unveiling event of our hearts to happen in our lives. If, if you were following along, you'll probably have noticed that this language of veils was all throughout 2 Corinthians 3. And what we're going to see is that Paul was not simply retelling his audience a historical event from the Old Testament. His, his audience would have been pretty familiar what, with what he was talking about. Um, we, not so much. But what Paul was talking about ultimately was a spiritual topic that concerned every Corinthian who he was writing to. And this is a topic that concerns each and every one of us. So this morning, we're going to think through this veil language that Paul was using. And we're going to do this in three ways. We're going to address how we have a need for a veil. We will see how this veil can be torn and, and removed. 
And then finally, we're going to see what an unveiled freedom in Christ truly looks like. All right? So we're going to start with our need for a veil. Now, some of you guys really came this morning to be encouraged, and then we read the first verse, like, ugh. Like, verse 7 says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Now, I, I've grown up in church all my life. I've been to a number of different churches. And I've yet to walk into a church door and be greeted by Corrine, who says, hi, I'm the, the head of ministry of death of this church. But, I mean, it's possible, maybe. But there's, and there's no tables for ministry of death in the foyer. So right away, we need to address, what does Paul mean by ministry of death? Well, what he was referencing was the Old Covenant and specifically the Law of Moses. This reference to the, the stone and the letters in stone would have been to the Ten Commandments which God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Because on that mountain, God gave to Moses two stone tablets which detailed the law. And the law could be summarized in two parts. The first half is how to love God, and the second part was how to love others. Now, you know, sometimes we hear the word law, we get kind of like, it makes us feel kind of weird, but the law is actually a really beautiful thing. It was a wonderful thing to have been given these Ten Commandments. To have God, right, he's the one that led them out of slavery and out of Egypt. As they're, they're in the wilderness now, this is the God who, he gave them parameters, he gave them direction and how they were supposed to live. God didn't just expect the Israelites to just kind of figure out on their own how they were supposed to, to do life, to live as free people. But he clearly told them how to live. That he gave them, he spoke these language, he spoke to them in language and in words that they could understand. The, so what we can see that is that the law given to the people was actually an act of mercy. It was an act of love. And that's why we can say that Paul, like, that's why Paul said that this law of stone was actually, it possessed a glory. Now, glory is not a word that we use often, but it's a word that we can't miss when we're reading this passage, because this word is used 12 times in our passage. It's used 10 times in the first five verses. So we really need to have a definition in mind when we look at glory. So let me give two. So first definition of a glory is kind of majesty. I think that's probably what, if, if you're familiar with the word, that's kind of what you think about, you know, this majestic, glorious thing. But then another definition is a little bit different. So you have majesty, but then I wanted to put before us the word heavy. Heavy, again, it seems kind of strange, but this comes from the, the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod is, that again, kind of means heavy. I want us to keep that in the back of our minds because we'll come back to that. So remember, kavod, heavy. So we have majesty and heavy. So, so, there, so first we'll kind of go with off the, the majesty definition. There is a majesty, there's a beauty to the law. And one characteristic that made it beautiful, that made it majestic, was that it's not simply interested in changing our outward appearances. The, rather, what the law does is it speaks to the heart. And Jesus, he really fleshed this out on the Sermon on the Mount. So, for example, the Sixth Commandment. What, someone tell me, what is the Sixth Commandment? Do not murder. Well, come on, people. But, all right, so, yes, yeah, so the Sixth Commandment said do not murder. Um, but, so, and so what this commandment says, for those that don't murder, they will be liable to judgment. But what Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he expanded on it. What he said, 
it was this, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Notice he's using the same judgment language for murder as he is to anger. The law of God speaks a lot differently than the laws of Palm Bay. While the laws of man attempt to restrain and to limit what man and women can do, the law of God's meant to bring about heart transformation. And these laws, they had so much glory, so much majesty that Moses, who is the one that ended up carrying these stone tablets down from the mountain, he started to look a little bit different. So in Exodus 34, which is kind of the passage that tells us about God giving the Ten Commandments and just the whole, this whole process, we read about how, um, how you know, God gave him these tablets. And it's, it's actually a really beautiful passage. I, I would love for us to be able to spend a little more time in Exodus 34 in the future. But um, in this passage, God reminds Moses that the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, he get, so God gives that powerful reminder of who he is to, the, to Moses. And then he goes even further by making a covenant with the Israelites. In this covenant, he said, Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people who, among whom you are, among you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God's promising that he will be their people and that he is actually going to remove and defeat their enemies, all in order to give them the promised land. If you remember how the spies reacted when they looked into the promised land and they saw, you know, the, they saw the giants, they saw these strong nations, they feared and they trembled. And yet, so they would have thought that it's an impossible task to actually go into this promised land and take over it. But God's saying, I promise, I'm making a covenant with you that I will do that. And the people, they were, so that was God's side, and the people side, they were supposed to destroy all the idol worship spaces, and they were supposed to serve God alone. What God is doing is he's covenantally promising to remain faithful to them, and they were supposed to remain faithful to him. And Exodus 34 tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, just communing and conversing with God. And after those 40 days, after those four nights, Moses descended down the mountain, but there was something noticeably different about him. The text tells us that his face was shining because he had been speaking with God. And actually, what even to kind of go even further than that, his face was shining because the glory of God was reflecting off of him. Now, we have, to, we have to notice that this is different than when we say, like, there's a pregnant mom who's just glowing. You know, she's just, you're so beautiful. Like, you know, we, we don't literally mean she's glowing. Like, but Moses' face was literally glowing. And it was so bright that it scared the rest of the Israelites that they initially ran away because there's, like, there's something really wrong with Moses. It was, it was so bright that when Moses wasn't giving the Israelites a message from God, you know, because God gave Moses the message that he was supposed to give the Israelites. When he was not giving them a message, he would actually pull a veil over his face to protect their eyes from what he was going, what was what his face being so shiny. All right, so let's, let's pause for a second, because like, we're like, what's going on here? Some of you guys came this morning, you're like, I didn't think, I wasn't going to talk about 
skin treatments or something. Like, there's, this is really strange. Well, how, how can we say, that, like, this guy's face is glowing and that's a good thing? How can we also say that this law, this old covenant was so great, was so glorious when Paul calls it a ministry of death? If you even go to verse 9, he calls it a law of, com- or a ministry of condemnation. Right? Those things don't sound like a good thing to me. But it's call- it was, the law was called... These, t- these titles, it was called the ministry of death. It was called the ministry of condemnation because what we realized is the law condemned the people. That God had given them 10 different commandments on these stone tablets, and the people consistently broke each and every one of them. And to make it even worse, they came up with all sorts of other ways to break them. That it wasn't enough to say, oh, I'm going to break it this way. No, I'm going to break it three different ways. And because they broke the law... Each of them, each and every one, it meant that they were covenant breakers, that they had broken the covenant that God had set before them, that he was supposed to be their God and they would be his people. They were breaking their end of the bargain. That's why Moses' face scared the people so much. That's Because what was happening is they were being confronted with the glory of God in a very visible way. They were being confronted by the God who knew about all of their sin, all of their disobedience. To quote verse 7 from our text, it says, The ministry of death came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. They couldn't look at his face that was reflecting the glory of God because they were ashamed. They could not stand it. That's why they initially ran away, because it was just overwhelming. And that's why eventually they put a veil over Moses' face. Because what this veil did was it served as a barrier between God and people. The same principle was applied in the tabernacle, right? With, with the, they put up the veil, this, or sometimes it's called a curtain, between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle, same with when the temple was built. There was a curtain sec- that sectioned off this part of the temple because the people could not fully understand or withstand the g- full glory and holiness of God. They needed that veil, that curtain to separate. So in, so in the days of Moses and the tabernacle and the temple, they had literal veils that existed. But what our text in 2 Corinthians 3 is teaching us is that Metaphorical veils existed in the days of old, like they existed in Moses' day, they existed in the days of Jesus, and now they, they also exist now. These are veils of the heart. These are veils that separate us from God. And actually what they do is they blind us to the work of God. They harden our hearts. They harden our minds. So that when we read the law, when we read the commandments of God, when we read the covenant of God, what we actually do is we reject it. This was certainly true of Paul's audience or the original Corinthians, because we can see that in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, it says, But when their minds were hardened, for to this day, right, the day when this letter was written, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Yes, and then go move on to 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Again, this is a message not for the Corinthians, but it's also for us. 
And just as the, as the Israelites were innovative sinners, right, they came up with all different ways to, to engineer ways to break God's law, we also find creative ways to reject God's word and his way. I want to highlight two ways that we reject God's way, right? First is just outright objection, rejection. You know, we we scoff at it. We we view God's way as outdated. And and essentially, though, what it comes down to is we love our sin. We love the immediate consequences or results that come from it, even though we know it goes against God's way, and so we reject God's way instead for that instant gratification we get from our sin, if we want to use that veil imagery, what we do is we take our veil and we pull it down farther. Not peeking, we're pulling it down farther. We know what's right, we're pulling it down. So that's one way we reject God's word and ways by this outright object, object rejecting, man, object, reject, something jack, out, reject it. But then let me highlight another way, and I think this way is actually a little more heinous. The way we reject God's way is thinking that we are not falling short of its requirements. We, we read the Bible, and our takeaway is, well, I'm doing pretty great. You know, I, I may make a minor mistake here or there. I may mess up once in a while, but overall, I'm getting an A. We also very quickly fall into this mindset that says, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And we start to tend to think that righteousness and holiness are graded on a scale or on a curve. But God doesn't grade on a curve. God's standards don't fluctuate based on who's taking the test. The price for eternal life is righteousness. And righteousness comes not because I think I'm better than the person sitting next to me. Righteousness comes through perfect obedience to the will of God. And we are truly blind if we think that we're spotless. Because in reality, we are worse sinners than we can even imagine. Many of us, if we've kind of been around the the church or the Bible for a long time, we tend to kind of read it about the Israelites, and we're like, these guys were idiots. They messed up all the time. Like, they are just really bad sinners. How could they have been so sinful? But the only difference between the Israelites in the Old Testament and us is that their sins are recorded in the Bible while ours aren't. <laughs> yeah, praise God is right. But, but. We deserve judgment We deserve condemnation for our sins just as much as the Israelites did. The ministry of death, which Paul is talking about, has glory. The ministry of death is kavod. It is heavy. And we should feel the weight of that glory. What the ministry of condemnation should do is it should bring us to the end of ourselves. And it should reveal to us our need for help our need for deliverance. It should reveal to us our need for the veil to be removed from our hearts and our need for a Savior. And that's exactly what is promised and what we find in Christianity. 
Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Again, keeping that kavod word in mind. For if there is a weight, if there's a heaviness in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far outweigh it. We are all great sinners who stand condemned. But the amazing thing that we see in Christianity is that God is a merciful and gracious God who is abounding in steadfast love. And because of his abounding steadfast love, Jesus Christ came to earth. The perfect God came to die for imperfect sinners. And Jesus perfectly upheld the laws that we all failed at. He went to the cross not deserving condemnation. And yet Jesus went to the cross and he took on the just wrath of God so that we would not have to do the same. Jesus died so that our veils that blind us could be torn from our hearts. Not just like slightly moved to the side, but torn from our hearts. And Jesus always kept that mission at the forefront of his mind. That everything that God did was for the glory of God and for the love for his people. So that even so, when he was on the cross, when Jesus was hanging, his lungs were literally collapsing from the crucifixion. And it would have taken an immense strength to pull yourself up so you could breathe. As he's dying, Jesus pulls himself up and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. What Jesus is saying is that forgive the people that just slandered me, that just beat me, that just nailed me to the cross. Jesus is saying forgive them. Forgive the people whose hearts are veiled. We need to understand the significance of that this morning. And so Jesus, as he's dying, as he's saying these things, he's dying for us. We remember that in both, all in Mark and in Matthew and Luke, they all record that when Jesus was on that cross, as his lungs were collapsing, as he was calling out forgiveness for us, the veil in the temple tore. The veil that hung in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple, it tore from top to bottom. Which again, we reminded that the curtain that separated us from the presence of God and the people was now completely gone. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't an amazing coincidence. But what this tearing of the veil of this curtain meant, what it signified and symbolized was what Jesus was doing on the cross. That Jesus was removing the veils from our hearts and from our minds. And he was bridging the gap between God and sinners. He was establishing this ministry of righteousness, which far outweighed the ministry of death. What Jesus did on that cross was give us freedom. He has given us life. Because he did what we cannot do, he fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law. Let's just quote Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Powerful verse. Because what it's saying is that when someday when we approach the judgment seat of God, our record, which would be lining going around and around circles of this room of our sins, our record's not going to show that list of sins. But what our record is going to do, it's going to bear the mark of Christ. That there's going to be a cross marked off on that record. The, the mark of perfect righteousness. Because what the Bible teaches us is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our passage, if I want to sum it down to one phrase this morning, is that the glorious, unveiled grace of God is greater than all of my sin. None of us, or no one that we know, has a list of sins that is too great to be covered by the righteousness of God or by the grace of God. No one is too far gone that even the criminal who was nailed to the cross standing next to Jesus, right? Criminals in those days weren't crucified for just stealing a piece of bread. This man was a hard criminal. He had done bad, bad things. And yet, this man called out to Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, come into my kingdom. He was welcomed into this wonderful grace of God, even at the end. Friends, the glorious, unveiled grace of God has been poured out for you and for me, for all of us who are great sinners. I want to ask a question from, kind of based to quote that old hymn that said, will you receive this marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, which is freely bestowed on all who believe? If you've not already received the grace of God, now is the time. Receive it today. And let the veil that covers our heart be completely ripped off, to be torn off of our hearts. Because when that happens, that's when we're going to find rest. That's when we're going to find freedom. And that only comes because of the work of Jesus. So what I, want, what I want us to think about as we kind of wrap up, 10 minutes-ish, sorry, but is what does this unveiled freedom look like, right? We're, we, we're like, God covers my sins. What does this mean from now on, though? First, what unveiled freedom means is a bold faith. Our text tells us that we can boldly approach God, that we can approach the throne of God because we have been invited. That we've been granted an audience before the king of the universe. That, and he has called us, each of us by name in doing so. So that we can boldly claim the inheritance that's given to the sons and daughters of God. Because Jesus has died to save us. Because this risen Lord has called us his children. 
And because we're called his children, we can go before him with all of our needs, anxieties, worries, wants, joys, fears, questions, all of the above. And we don't need to fear rejection because God has clearly said that he cares for us. And his actions line up with his words. We can speak boldly to God. And I love this, what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. It says very boldly. We can speak very boldly to God because we have a hope in Jesus. Second, unveiled freedom looks like a closeness to God. To those of us who, are, who put their faith in Jesus, who put our ultimate trust and our ultimate hope in him, we are given this gift of salvation. But not only do we just receive this great gift, we also receive God himself. We talked about this quite a bit last week, but we actually received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the one who, who makes us in, out of wretches into masterpieces. God himself is dwelling within all of us who put our faith in him. You don't get much closer to God when he's living inside of you. Now, I know, though, that there's seasons that we go through where we don't feel close to God, where we feel like God is distant, um, like he's kind of silent in our lives. I know that some of you guys right now are feeling that way, that God is just not really around. But I want to, I want to remind us of a couple of truths when we get into those, those, those mindsets where just God's not here, is that first, God is faithful, that God doesn't abandon those people who have drawn near to him. Jesus would not have gone through everything that he went through in order to give up on us. He wouldn't have done all that so that we would fall through the cracks. Jesus plainly said in John 6 that everyone in, that who comes to him will never be lost. So if you think that God is distant from you, Remind yourself that God is faithful, that he would not have done all those things if he was going to let you fall through the cracks. And that's also second, too, just about how to remind ourselves that silence doesn't mean desertion. So that when we're, going th when we're going through seasons where we feel God is distant, when he's far off, it's very easy for us to kind of shift into that mindset, well, you know, God has abandoned me because I, I can't hear him, I don't see him at work, so obviously he must be gone and I'm just going to shift into that mindset. If you get into that mode, I really want, to shift, I want us to shift in the opposite direction. Rather than say God is distant and I can't hear from him, I want us to get, when we're feeling distant from him, I want us to draw into him. Let's use these moments of, of silence, of feelings of desertion to call out to God, to really emphasize our prayer times, to emphasize our devotional times. And then I also want us to surround ourselves with other Christians. Jesus told us that where two or three or more are gathered in his name, there he is with them. Often God speaks to us through fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we were made for community. We were made for biblical community, where we can teach each other, where we can encourage one another, we can challenge each other to all grow in godly living. So if you are feeling distant from God, right now, I want you to ask yourself if you are part of biblical community. Because if, and if you're not, change that. 
Start doing life with other believers. And you, because once you do that, you're going to be, begin to see that, all, like you're going to see all of the ways that the Spirit of God is working around you. And it won't take long before you notice that God's working in amazing ways inside of you too. That's not just God's out there, but he's working in here. Living in biblical community is one of our church values here at Covenant. And if you, if you aren't involved, I want to make sure that you go to the connect table after the service just to learn more about different ways to connect your family and yourself to, um, to our church. Because the Christian journey is, is called a race, but it's not a competition. That we're not all competing against one another, but instead we're all on the same team. And we're all called to spur one, each, one another on. All in order so that we can reach the finish line where we will be someday greeted by Christ our Lord. Unveiled freedom looks like a bold faith. It looks like closeness to God. Um, but let's, let's end with this. Unveiled freedom means transformation. Verse 18 it was one of my favorite in this passage. And it says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you have put your faith in God, you are being transformed. The veil is being removed from your heart, and you, will some, you are going to be able to see and understand the glory of God. And you'll steadily be transformed because the Holy Spirit cannot go unnoticed in your life. It can't, he cannot, when the Holy Spirit dwells in a person, they will experience change. Because what the Holy Spirit is doing is he is making us more and more into the image of Jesus every day. This is what we call the process of sanctification. The Spirit shows us our sins he reminds us of the perfection of Christ, and that he equips us to live out the way that God intends for us to live. And the cool thing is we are called to be part of this process. The process of sanctification is definitely powered by the Holy Spirit, but we get to play a part in it. That we get to work with our Savior as he works inside of us. I think another cool way to think about this is that we get to work with our Father. The Father who gave up everything for us. And the transformation that's going to be taking place in our lives will be unbelievable. So that someday we will be unrecognizable on that day when we are ultimately received into glory. And the day that we will actually see God with unveiled faces. Let's pray. Lord, remove the veils from our hearts. Tear them off, because we recognize that there is so much freedom and power in life with you as opposed to your way. Remind us this day of our sins, and remind us even more of the Savior that is, is near to us, who we can have a relationship with, we can, we can do life with, and you can actually dwell inside of us. Lord, work in us in powerful, powerful ways this day even. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.